beautiful writers, welcome to my channel. Today we're going to finish up the third part of our three-part archetype series. I have a totally packed video for you today. Hi, I'm Autumn Bordeaux and here you'll find writing tips, author tools, and maybe even a little bit of inspiration. If you've been following my archetype series, you already know that I use archetypes to create more in-depth characters. Archetypes have obvious strengths. They also have obvious weaknesses and then some not so obvious weaknesses that you can kind of reveal and create because digging deeper into your character really helps you with your character arc, which is essential in great stories. Knowing the traditional strengths and weaknesses associated with the archetype helps with the process of discovery, your discovery of everything you can write about that character. You'll be able to add more tension, action, pivot points, reversals, conflicts, raise stakes, emotions. If those words are kind of new to you or you don't know how to use them, uh, I've dropped two links to my previous videos on both building character arcs and the elements of a scene. Before we get started, and you probably already know what I'm gonna say if you've watched the two previous videos, I want to say that archetypes are gender fluid. If one of the archetypes is associated with a particular gender, that's an old school rule, it no longer applies. So don't feel bound by that. Okay, I have a packed, packed video today. So hold on to your seats and I'm gonna to try to crush it all in. The caregiver. They're all about generosity and compassion. They're selfless, but they can be prone to martyrdom. And you know what? They're often enablers. Their generosity, their compassion, their selflessness, those are all good things, right? The enabling, not so much. But there's a lot more you can do to add negative and positive aspects to the caregiver archetype. On the good side, they can always be there for the protagonist. They can be an emotional or mental or spiritual pick-me-up. On the negative side, they can be intrusive, nosy, and don't deliver quite the right care that the protagonist needs. Not everyone likes a hug. Or maybe the caregiver needs some kind of care. What do they call that now? Self-care. Their character growth can come from them not caring enough about themselves. Or maybe they have to learn that the protagonist needs to find their inner strength, that they shouldn't be the protagonist's crutch, and that the protagonist shouldn't be so reliant on their caregiving. Well, obviously that we need people when we're down and people can help us, that we need care. And also that we should also be caregivers ourselves to other people, that other people need care, that it is often a reciprocal relationship. The next archetype is the seeker, wanderer, explorer. This archetype seeks the unknown. Now they can be oppositional, they can buck the trends, have wanderlust, break the rules, bend the rules to get to whatever it is that they seek. Curiosity is their middle name. What are they seeking? Is it treasure or wisdom or themselves? Are they seeking it for personal gain, for personal glory? Or do they seek justice for others? Do they seek wisdom for all? What they seek 
and why they seek it speaks volumes to the reader. Other things you might want to consider with the seeker. Do they find that which they seek? What happens if they find it? What happens if they don't? Or what if what they sought wasn't what they thought at all? As you can see, the seeker, wanderer character, you can add a lot of complexity with pivot points, plot points, discovery, self-revelation, and conflict. All by looking at your seeker's motivations and if they find it and what it is. What the Seeker Wander Explorer does for the reader is help us discover our own uniqueness, our own perspectives, and our own callings in life. What's your calling? The Seeker helps us take an active part in our own self-discovery to question the world. The Outlaw Destroyer is next. It is the favorite antagonist of many films and stories. This archetype has rage. It can be repressed or not. And that rage can be against society, other people, rules that no longer serve, laws that no longer serve, politics, cultures, dogmas, you name it. This archetype tends to be ruthless. Hmm. What if you named a character Ruth Lester? Sorry, I have fun with character names. The flaws of the destroyer are pretty obvious. You know, we've got the whole destruction thing going on. But what about their strengths? They need some. Often, but not always, this rage is justified because it is against one of those things I just named, right? Culture, dogmas, dictates, laws, rules, society, whatever it may be. And we all have maybe that rage inside of us, just not expressed. They're raging against a wrong, you know, a wrong with a capital W. And their anger can ultimately be a good thing. It can enact change. It can push change in the right direction. Maybe more substantive changes are going to happen because of their initial rage. Anger gets more things done than niceness after all. At least I think so. In the description box below, I've included my video on how to make a villain more complex. I mean, even the good guys have to have some redeeming qualities, right? Or they just become tropes, flat characters, and you never want that. And that becomes super predictable either, which is boring. So leak out a backstory, like slow drip, 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 of why they're filled with this rage, why they want to destroy, why they're filled with hate. Give them reasons that the author can identify with, or at least understand or can sympathize with. So what can a reader learn from a destroyer? No, not to destroy. Well, sort of what I mentioned earlier, that sometimes that rage, although it's misguided, is a thing that's real, that a lot of people are angry about. Sure, the character went over the deep end with it. The destroyer helps the reader empathize, sympathize with what's wrong with society. Also the how and why behind a bad person. Maybe they even agree with the destroyer. Maybe the destroyer is like a weed whacker and he whacks out all the weeds and sometimes you kill some of the plants while you're weed whacking, but ultimately you need to weed your garden so that the new growth, the better growth, the nutritious growth can flourish. That's how your destroyer can be. The next archetype is the ruler. 
Where's my crown? Wait. Here's my crown. The ruler are the kings and queens, the people who make the decision, you know, for all of you little people out there, the minions. Think my crown is falling? That's symbolic. Their traits can be good or bad. After all, there is a very wide spectrum of the kinds of rulers there are. So you've got some awesome flexibility here. The, the ruler archetype wants to instill order to prevent chaos. Rulers are defined by their need for security, gaining and retaining power. Actually, that's the name of the ruler game. Leadership and power, good or bad, that's what they're all about. And they don't much like it when somebody breaks their rules. There's probably about a million negative traits that a ruler can have. They can be control freaks, entitled, cold-hearted, arrogant, or overreaching. Hmm, Macbeth. They can be dismissive. They can be evil. They can be good. They can be out of touch with the little people. I think this is true for any ruler, noble or political. Ruler archetypes inspire the reader to take control of our own lives, to be the ruler in our own little kingdom, to make decisions and stand by those decisions, to do what needs to get done. I need a new crown. This will not stay on. It's lopsided. Is my rule lopsided? The magician is next. The magician searches out the essential laws of science, metaphysics, and the supernatural and spiritual world. They seek to transform situations with that very knowledge. They also seek to influence people and turn their visions into realities. They often have secret knowledge. They can be visionaries and they tend to be pretty good problem solvers. Some of the great traits they have, intelligence and having a good intuition. They can magically protect other characters. They can be charismatic and really skilled at explaining complex things very clearly and simply. You know, so we little people can understand. They tend to be very resilient to troubles and setbacks. Why? They believe. They believe. They believe. Their not so great traits include being secretive about their magical, mystical, spiritual world. Perhaps they rely too much on their charms and potions and incantations. Perhaps when they interpret dreams, they don't interpret them quite correctly. And they really have to learn how to not be overpowered by their own power, not to go to the dark side. They have to learn not to use their power manipulatively. What can a reader learn from the magician? To believe, to believe, to believe in yourself that there is such a thing as secret knowledge, that esoteric wisdom is out there and it can be harnessed and used for good, hopefully. What kind of character growth can a magician have? Well, there's that whole temptation to use your magic for personal gain kind of thing going on, to over manipulate people and events and situations that would have dire consequences and have wide world cataclysmic repercussions. All that secret keeping can get them into trouble. Little trouble, big trouble, like you messed up the time space continuum or something. Their magic may get into the wrong hands. They may deem the wrong people worthy. They give the wrong people their secret knowledge. 
They can be overconfident in their power. They have to learn to stay centered, focused, humble, to stay true and pure and all that good stuff. They can't let the magics take over and steal their soul or consume their life. The sage is next. The sage seeks the truth and the truth will set us free. They can be academics, professors, gurus, experts, wise men, or mentors. They believe that learning never stops and that wisdom rules. They take all kinds of truths, mental, spiritual, philosophical, cultural, anything you can think of, and they use it to understand the world's truths. They help others see the light, to find the light within themselves, to look at things with a whole new perspective. The sage may or may not have faith in mankind. That's up to you. They are really good at giving their students things to do, tasks to perform, lessons to learn, you know, whatever helps them get out of their ignorance. And those sages are pretty darn confident about their wisdom. Maybe too confident. True story. One of my daughter's friends calls me the sage because all of the advice and introspection that I give her is spot on. I'm not really a sage. I just lived a whole lot longer than she has. <laughs> what kind of weaknesses does a sage have? I bet you're getting pretty good at this and have already started thinking of a few. And yes, you're absolutely right. The one is that sages have to overcome the temptation of their own dogma, of their own belief system. They think their way is the only way, that their truth is the only truth. And you've seen this a lot of times in stories. It's a trope. The protagonist actually transcends the sage's own wisdoms. Often a sage will only give a partial answer to their truth. Why? I guess it's part of the learning process, but sages can be wrong and they have to learn that even the great sage can still learn that the student will surpass the master and that the sage themselves is hemmed in and confined by their own dogmas or perceptions of the truth. What do readers learn from the sage? Well, they help us see the world and others objectively. They help us get out of our own little box of understanding and see the big picture. To see not just the trees and not just the forest, but to be the astronaut overlooking that beautiful blue globe and seeing the world in its entirety. The Jester. The jester enjoys life, but he also tends to be a little bit lazy. They like to live on the wild side. They're playful, but can get bored pretty fast. Jesters poke fun at people. They mock people and situations. And that can be mean, but they do it in a funny way that gets people to laugh. Maybe not everybody. And they can always be counted on to lighten up a room. They laugh a lot. They joke a lot. And they don't take things all that seriously. They tend to have a lot of friends and they find new ways of looking at old things or issues or problems. Authority, not their thing. Jesters don't tend to reveal their true feelings. You know, they're well hidden behind their mask of jokes. Most comedians are jester types. 
Jesters aren't so good at reality checks, time management, or you know, all that adulting stuff. What do jesters teach the reader? To lighten up, to have a laugh, that anything can be made funny, even the boring or the horrible. They teach us that there is room for humor in almost any situation, almost. They also teach us that a good mood is contagious. So how does a jester have character growth? Well, they can mock and make fun of the wrong person or the right person at the wrong time. They can learn that humor doesn't solve every problem, that joking around all the time doesn't get things done, that their silliness can lead to resentment, anger, fear, or hostility, and they can be dismissed or disrespected, that their jokes and gesturedness, is that a word? hide a deep sadness or some horrible occurrence. You've seen it before in the movies, right? Where there's the funny guy, the jester, and he's cracking all the jokes. And then everybody's laughing and he turns his head and the camera pans onto his head. The smile slips off his face. And you're thinking, ooh, what's he really thinking? What lurks deep in the jester's soul? What person or event will crumble, destroy his jovial attitude? What truths lurk at the edge of his jokes? And will they be his undoing? The trickster. The trickster is an ancient archetype from like way, way, way back. The trickster breaks the gods' rules. Loki is a trickster. Puck from Midsummer Night's Dream is a trickster. Bert Simpson is a trickster. Coyote in Native American mythologies is a trickster. The Roadrunner is a trickster. Now you know what a trickster is. The trickster is very intelligent. Never underestimate them. They're schemers and the range can be anywhere from sinister to good-hearted. He is purposely mischievous. And the purpose is to teach you, mortals, or the gods, something about life or to give them a dose of their own medicine. He is a malicious practical joke player. A trickster defies conventions and they love to disobey the rules of the gods and humankind. The trickster plans his tricks. They're cunning and devious. Usually the gods or the humans will understand the point once the trick is played, but not always. In other words, sometimes the lesson is learned and sometimes not. What does a trickster figure teach the reader? That nothing is sacrosanct. That even the best laid plans can go horribly wrong. To expect the unexpected. How can a trickster figure have character growth? Glad you asked. Trickster's tricks can work or not. The lesson can be learned or not. The trickster may learn that his tricks piss off the wrong people who can play tricks on him. And his tricks can have unintended consequences. Maybe for him, maybe for others. He learns that his tricks can anger the wrong people. And by wrong people, I mean the people who have more power than he does. Maybe he learns that it's not his lesson to teach, that people can get hurt. The trickster learns that he can be as infallible as anybody else. Does your protagonist best the trickster? 
fall under their sway, or learn valuable lessons. That's up to you. The lover. It can be parental, familial, spiritual, or platonic. The lover tends to be captivating, passionate about something, and they can be all about self-improvement. The protagonist's improvement. They're great at building relationships, nurturing relationships, and making others feel appreciated. They're good at helping people find love and friendship, and they can do this with through beauty or communication and closeness. They're all about connecting with people and personal connections. Personal connections. They teach the reader that personal connections are super important for everyone. That people who need people are the luckiest people in the world. Remember that old song? That feelings matter. That you, the reader, matter. How can a lover have character growth? The flip side of the lover is that they can have fear of being unloved or rejected. They can also be a bit possessive, obsessive, overly dramatic. They tend to value feelings over logic, over reason, and feelings are transitory. Or maybe they have to realize that haters gonna hate and that not everybody is comfortable with all that connecting. Or maybe people aren't comfortable with all the feels. Maybe the lover gets burned, lied to, or cheated on. The temptress. She's the femme fatale, the siren. She's hot, sexy, sensuous, alluring. You know, all those adjectives. And you know what her job is. It's to bring about the downfall of the hero. She's gorgeous, desirable, witty, charming, intelligent, but ultimately unethical, immoral, and unscrupulous. She will have her way. She leads the protagonist astray, slowly or quickly, gets them to do risky things they might not have and do things they normally wouldn't do. The temptress thwarts. Thwarts. I love that word. Thwart. And sometimes the hero doesn't even know he's thwarted until he does. The temptress offers the dark side on a golden platter with lots of cleavage. Sometimes she's pretty obvious, but often not. And the temptation doesn't always have to be, you know, <clears throat> naughty. It can be spiritual or philosophical. Now, you know, you're not just born a temptress. Something in her life made her that way. She probably experienced some kind of tragedy or great trauma in her life that made her react that way to do what she needs to do to get what she wants. Somehow somebody exploited her some way. So that's the only way she knows. She doesn't have to be bad to the core. You get to decide whether she is redeemable or not. And usually at the end of the story. So what does the reader learn from the temptress? Well, the reader learns that good men and good women can be thwarted. They can be tempted. That temptation isn't always obvious. Here's an apple. That it can be subtle, done in stages, 
not with a walk down a path, but just a gentle, occasional shuffle. You can follow those alluring crumbs bit by bit, and gradually you veer quite far away from your path. And then you look up and bam, it's decision time. And how did the protagonist get there? That's when they realize, aha, the temptress. The temptation. Now the temptation can be a million different things, but the temptation has to sound really, really good. It has to be really, really good. Wait, wait, that's, well, that's why it's tempting. What kind of character growth can a temptress have? She can have an epiphany about why she is the way she is, that she didn't have to go to the dark side, that she can become a better person. She can grow a heart. She can feel bad about what she's doing. She can be affected by her conscience. You get to decide. Is she redeemable or not? The platonic ideal is the last archetype in the series. The platonic ideal is the protagonist intellectual equal. They share the same interests and the same goals. Platonic ideals would be Bert and Mary Poppins. Any of the women co-stars in any of the Dan Brown books. Disney does a great job in a lot of their movies with the platonic ideal archetypes. They're buddies that help each other out. They're always there for each other. They're Jerry and Elaine in Seinfeld. They're Harry and Hermione. Did I pronounce that right? They're Joey and Phoebe. TV and films have lots of examples of the platonic ideal archetype. What does the reader learn from the platonic ideal? That you can have a bestie. That you can have a bestie of the opposite sex without all that other stuff getting in the way. That it's good to have another perspective. That you need a partner in crime or someone you can laugh and cry with. That you need a friend. How does a platonic ideal have character growth? Well, the common trope is that the platonic ideal has romantic feelings for the protagonist. I think that might even be a subgenre in romances. I think it's best friends to lovers. There can be an inclusion of another best friend, a third wheel, better friend. There can be friend friction. The best friend may be harboring a secret that if the protagonists know, they will never look at the platonic ideal the same again. That the secret that they keep is so horrible, whatever horrible thing that it will destroy their friendship forever. The platonic ideal can find their soulmate and it's not the protagonist. They can get engaged and get married and don't have time for you. That's it for archetypes. Remember, an archetype can do anything, anything. The question will always be why. Down below, I've included the male and female archetypes along with some of the others that I had mentioned earlier about scenes and character arcs. So check those out if you haven't seen those already. Next week, I will be discussing how to find time to write when you work full time. So I hope you'll join me for that. And now you know what you need to do. And if you've watched me before, you know what I'm gonna say. Dream, create, and embrace. Bye-bye.